Okay. And it reads, Now after Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of God descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the gods trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He, he is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay, and then go quickly and tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a, they gave a sufficient amount, a, a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers, and said, "Tell people." His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they kept, they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread amongst the Jews for this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of God. Uh, Father, we praise you for your everlasting faithfulness, that you are God who keeps his promises, and that ultimately your promise to send your chosen king to save mankind and to bring us into your blessed rule, your kingdom, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Uh, Father, we pray that tonight, as those who have become part of this kingdom, that we would see the priority of the mission of this kingdom that you would challenge us tonight, that we would see that our lives are not about us. They're not ours. You command us and send us to your mission of making disciples who make disciples. So Lord, would you help us to hear from your word tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, if you were here, you would remember that David mentioned this book. Uh, it's, a, it's a great book titled, Speeches That Shaped. South Africa. Spoke has a number of brilliant speeches. Um, I'm not so keen on some of them, but uh, it has got great speeches that have shaped our nation. 
great speeches that will give you an understanding of the history of our country. This book will help you understand how words shape human history. And I thought it would be great uh, for us as we go through today's talk to look at one of the speeches from this book. But before that, in the Easter of 1993, Nelson Mandela addressed the nation over several, several times via several kinds of platforms. It was via radio and TV regarding the murder of Chris Tembisile Ani. See, he wanted to bring a nation that had now been plummeted into violence and killings. He wanted to bring calm to the nation following this event. See, he called this event a crime against all people. The the most notable of his addresses, uh, I said he did several of them. The most most, uh, notable one is one that was televised on the 13th of April and has been recorded for us here in this book. Now, let me read parts of the speech that Nelson Mandela gave. Listen to these words. Tonight, I'm reaching out to every South African, black and white, from the depths of my being. What has happened is a national tragedy that has touched millions of people across the political and color divide. Our decisions and actions from now on will determine whether we use our pain, our grief, and outrage to move forward to what is the only lasting solution as a country, an elected government of the people, by the people, for the people. When we, as one people, act act together decisively with discipline and determination, nothing can stop us. We are a nation in mourning. To the youth of South Africa, we have a special message for you You have lost a great hero. You have repeatedly shown that your love of freedom is greater than the most precious gift, life itself. But you are the leaders of tomorrow. Your country, your people, your organization needs you to act with wisdom. A particular responsibility rests on your shoulders. Now this book here is a Now, this book here records for us a speech that truly indeed transformed our country after that event. Now, in a room this big, I'm quite aware that a number of us have probably polarized views about Chris Honey, Nelson Mandela, and about this particular event, how things should have been handled, and we probably have polarized views as well about what should have happened post-1994. I'm aware of these polarized views, and I acknowledge them, and that I myself often have these polarized emotions about the history of our country. But, but here's the one thing I'm convinced of. I'm convinced that these words from this speech and the words of many others safeguarded our country from the possibility of being plunged into civil war. See, these words shaped the history of our country. These words shaped and transformed our country into a new dawn. A new dawn, a rainbow nation, a country where each person's citizenship is respected. Without these words and the words of many others, none of us knows where our country would be today. See, words have the power to transform. Words have the power to shape, 
history. Now, if the, mere word, if the words of mere men can do this, imagine what the words of the Son of God, the God-man, can do. Imagine what the Word of Heaven can do. Last week, David told us, as he was teaching from Matthew 13, that as God's Word went out from the parable, as God's Word goes out, that there are different reactions to God's Word. That some, some may reject God's word. But one thing that was very clear as well is that as God's word goes out, if it grips someone's heart, if it grips one person's heart or a community's heart, it transforms that person and transforms that community entirely. See, when God's word grabs hold of someone's heart, it causes great fruitfulness and multiplication. See, the words of Jesus have power. They have power and great power to change. And you see, in our passage tonight, we will see as Jesus stands before his disciples and gives them a speech and speaks some words to them, how these words transformed the lives of his disciples. Now, now let me remind you, in case you are new to the church or in case you have forgotten, let me remind you that these disciples are the very men who deserted him when he was about to be crucified. They turned their backs on him. But when you read the Bible, on account of these words, these men are known as world changers. They became agents of God's work to save and transform humanity. Such that when you read Acts 17, this is what is said of them. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. See, because of these words they heard from Jesus, these men became transformed such that they themselves became agents of transformation. They turned the world upside down. Now, these words that we have recorded in the speech in the passage tonight did not just change the lives of these disciples, but no, they've changed the lives of billions of others all throughout human history who have gone out to take this message of the gospel, this message of transformation, because they heard these words from this speech from Jesus. Now, you may be asking, what is it that Jesus said to these disciples that would have caused such great transformation to them? Now, would you turn to uh, your Bibles so we can, to the passage that was read for us a bit earlier. And as we go through this passage, I have three points for us. If you are part of our life groups here at the church that David spoke about, you, you would, you, you'd remember some of these phrases as something that is familiar because these are the phrases we've been using. But if you're not part of a life group and you would love to join one, please come to speak to me or David and we'll see what life group we would fit you in. So three points tonight from our passage. This is the very first point from verse 16 and 17. What is a disciple? Now, all throughout our series, we've covered that, what a disciple is. But I think it will be good for us tonight to go back to, the, to that very thing. Because verse 16 and 17 give us the context to the speech that Jesus gives to his disciples in verse 18 and 19. So first point, what is a disciple? Second point, why make disciples from verse 18? The third point is how to make disciples, verse 18, verse 19 to verse 20. So let's go to our very first verse. verse. First point, what is a disciple? Verse 16 and verse 17. And we'll read together. 
Find your way to Matthew 28. We'll read from verse 16. Matthew 28 from verse 16 reads as follows. Now the eleven, now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. That's verse 16 and 17. Now, now the very first thing you see when you read verse 16 is, it says, the eleven disciples. Why eleven? Again, if you are new to the church, new to Christianity, or somehow you have forgotten, let me remind you. That at first Jesus had 12 disciples. He had, he had chosen 12 men to follow him, to be with him, to walk with him. And for a period of three years, they were with him as he taught and performed miracles. But here, we're given an insight that one of them fell away. One of them is not included. Why does Matthew mention this to us? Is there something that you and I are meant to glean, meant to understand from this, from the 12 becoming 11? Well, yes, there is something we are meant to glean. Matthew mentions this so that you and I could pause and ponder not only what happened to this other disciple, but more importantly, who is a disciple? Am I a follower? See, for a period of three years, there was one among them, one among them who ate with them, who, who walked with them, who heard the words of Jesus as they did. He, he left everything behind and followed Jesus. Now, if you remember something else from the, from the book of Matthew, is that when Jesus sent them out on mission, he sent them all, all the twelve, to teach and perform miracles. So this very man taught and performed miracles. So it looked like he was on mission. He was actually on mission for Jesus. He knew the language that everyone else used. He knew what he needed to do to fit in. But you see, he managed to fool everyone but Jesus that he was a disciple, that he was a follower, such that on the night before Jesus was betrayed, as he was having a meal with his 12 disciples, as he sat with them, he said, by the end of the night, one of you will betray me. By the end of the night, one of you will betray me. Now the 12 did not all turn towards Judas and look at him and say, oh, lunch bar. Obvious. Obvious. It's him. It's got to be him. There's something that is just, that doesn't add up about him. It makes sense that it would be him. No, they don't do that. Rather, what happens in the scene is they all look around the room and ask themselves, is it me? Is it him? Is it him? Jesus, tell us who it is. See, this man here had masqueraded as a follower. He, he looked like he was on mission. He looked like he was on mission because he was calling others to Jesus. But perhaps in the time that he spent with Jesus, perhaps in the time that he heard God's word, God's word landed on a path. It landed on a, on a hard heart. And so that word was snatched from him. Or the word probably landed on a rocky heart. He received the word with joy at first. But after a while, because he had no roots, he turned away. Perhaps the word landed on a heart that was thorny. He received the word, but after a while, the worries of this world choked out the word. Now here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's, here's why you and I need to look at that verse and, and really think about it. You and I, just like this disciple, are prone 
to masquerade as followers of Jesus. It could look like we're on mission for Jesus. We're calling people to Jesus. Like our life is really about his kingdom. But really behind that, that's not what's happening. See, see, here are two ways I think we can do it. One, here's one of the ways. We can knowingly live double lives. We can knowingly live double lives while hiding a major pattern of sin. Listen to that, a major pattern of sin or lifestyle in the background. So whenever we come around people, especially church people, we put up this facade, we put up this mask to make it seem like we are about God's kingdom, to make it seem like we are about calling others to God. But really we are about ourselves. We don't want to let go of our sin. We don't want to let go of what God calls us to let go of, to follow him. And so the question to us then first is, as we are calling others to follow, are we ourselves following? See, the other side of the coin could be this, that there's no major pattern of sin in your life. You're so disciplined that you have managed to stay away from sin. You've managed to stay away from anything that looks like sin. But really behind, behind that discipline is self-reliance, self-righteousness, and pride. Really behind that is a facade. You are trying or you have been working your own way to God. Around people, it looks like you're okay. But really, you struggle with self-righteousness and pride. And like this man, are masquerading as a disciple. There's an illustration that is used to say uh, Christians or followers of Jesus are people who are beggars, who point other beggars to the bread. Now imagine that the person who is a beggar themselves points others to the bread, but they themselves do not go. This is why we've got to think about this. Are you masquerading as a disciple? One of my good friends liked a group called Casting Crowns. They have a song called Stained Glass Masquerade. Now, I never really got into casting crowns, but he played the song so much that one of the songs, that this song, I really got to like it. Uh, This is one of the lines from the song. This is what it says. Am I the only one who has traded in the altar for a stage? See, I think most of us tonight, if not all of us, need to do this introspection to ask ourselves, Have I traded in the altar for a stage? Have I made my Christian life? Have I made even calling others to Jesus about my performance? Because if you've made it about that, it'll make it hard for you to be able to live for Jesus in the way that he wants you to. Because you yourself will struggle with following him. So here's the question. Are you performing tonight? Have you traded in the altar for the stage? Have you surrendered all to Jesus? Have you surrendered your weakness, your works? Have you realized your deep need for Jesus, especially as he sends you on his mission? Kyle Ardiman is, a, is, a, is an author who's got a book called Not a Fan, uh, Making People Who Are Completely Followers of Jesus is the title of the book. And, and this is what he says in his book. The biggest threat to the church today is fans who call themselves Christians but aren't really interested in following Christ. They want to be close enough to Jesus to get all the benefits, but not close that it requires anything and everything from them. See, fans mistake the knowledge of Jesus for intimacy with Jesus. So as you hear this word tonight, 
that Jesus calls us to call others to follow him. Are you yourself following? See, if you're not a Christian tonight and you have not yet made the step to follow Jesus, there's the invitation from him tonight that stands, that you yourself can follow him. And you see, the disciples realize their weakness. They realize their need for Jesus. Because in the very next verse, their, their reaction to Jesus tells us that. It says they worshipped him, but some doubted. That, that's a bit of a complicated phrase that I won't spend much time explaining. But really, that phrase gives us an understanding here that the disciples seem to have a mixed, reaction, mixed reaction, similar to verse 8 of this very chapter. And really, one of the best ways to explain their reaction is a phrase from another gospel that says, Lord, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. See, they've come to be, they see Jesus. They believe in him. They worship him. Because they've seen now that he has resurrected, that everything that he had said about himself is true. But they're concerned and hesitant because they do not know what this means for them. They do not know what will happen now because Jesus is about to ascend. But notice, they obeyed. Jesus told them to come to this mountain, and they came. Now we see here who is the disciple. A disciple is not the person who seems to have their life altogether. No, the disciple is a person who brings their weaknesses to Jesus and obeys his word and realizes that Jesus calls them to a mission. That's our very first point. What is a disciple? Our second point, why should we make disciples? Now we go into the speech that Jesus gives to his disciples, why should, we make, why should we make disciples, is our second point. Let me read for us from verse 18. This is what verse 18 says. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So why make disciples is our point. Now without belaboring, a point that just seems too obvious. Uh, I hope you noticed that it doesn't say some authority has been given to Jesus. It doesn't say most. It says all. All authority has been given to this Jesus. Matthew 11, Jesus himself says this. He says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And all throughout this gospel, we see how Jesus displays this authority. See, Jesus in this speech claims total power and dominion over all things. And we're given the scope of his authority that is on, on heaven and on earth. It is the whole creation. This is the claim from Jesus that he has all power. He has all authority. He has all power. And as I've just said, all throughout the gospel, he displayed this authority. He displayed it by healing the sick, the lame, and the blind. By showing his power over nature. By calming the storm and walking on water. By showing his authority in teaching and in calling men to follow him. He showed his authority over death by raising the dead. And ultimately, he himself rose from death, we are told in Matthew 28. And so he showed his power in disarming death, in disarming sin, and disarming Satan and warn salvation for all people. See, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by which 
we must be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who has final authority. He has all the authority. Jesus has been exalted to the highest place. One of the songs we've just sang said that. His name is above every name, and at his name every knee will bow. In heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that this Jesus Christ is Lord. Note, it says every tongue will confess. It says every knee will bow. And you see some have already bowed the knee now, and when he comes back, they will bow the knee and confess his lordship with joy. But some will bow the knee and confess that this Jesus is the judge king, that he has all authority. He has absolute, universal, and everlasting control over all things. Matthew, as he began his gospel in Matthew 1, wanted us to see that. In Matthew 1, if you would like to hear a sermon on that, I did a sermon on it last year. He points out to us that this Jesus is the son of David. He's God's king. He's the one who sits on God's throne and has all authority. Abraham Kaper puts it this way. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine, mine, all of it. It belongs to him. He has a claim over all things. He has authority over all things. Now, there are two implications that you and I should take, two applications which should take from that phrase that says Jesus is all authority. One, two implications that will show us why we should make disciples. One, it shows us that we are not our own. If Jesus has all power and all authority and has a claim over all of our lives, then he owns me. He owns you, especially if we have come to believe in him and follow him. He owns us. Let's not miss that. That's very important because it makes what Jesus said next not an option. Because what Jesus says next is very important. And if we miss this, we might think what he says next is an option. It is a suggestion. It is advice. No, it's a command, a command from the king, the king of the universe who sends us on his mission. So you and I are not the ones who will choose what our lives are about. It's not for you or for me to choose what our lives should be about, whether my life will be about my career, about my business, about my family, about my studies. It's not for you and me to choose that. We can't, especially if Jesus is king over all. He dictates what we do with our lives. And if we have come to follow him, it is clear that he calls us into his mission. It is not a suggestion. It is not an option. It's a command, a clear command from him, a clear command from the king of the universe. That's the first implication. The second implication that you and I ought to get is that if he has all authority, then... No power, no person, no government system has all the authority. No government system has all the authority. And so for the disciples, this is what they would have heard. You do not need to fear the Jewish leaders. You do not need to fear Rome, who was oppressing them. You do not need to fear anyone else who might oppress you. Because Jesus has final authority. See, when you read through the book of Acts, you realize, you see the fearlessness 
that these disciples were mocked by. And the reason why they were mocked by this fearlessness is because they heard these words. They heard these words from Jesus, who had sent them out and said, I have all authority. So fear not anyone else. I have all authority. So sillily, cupcake, Ramaphosa, does not have all the authority. Yes, those are his nicknames, sillily and cupcake. He, he doesn't. Al-Bashir, who was ousted in Sudan, or you can say northern Sudan, doesn't have all the authority. Obian, in Equatorial Guinea, does not have all the authority. The man who almost caused World War III Trump does not have all the authority. Putin. Many others you can add to that list. None of them have all the authority. Jesus does. So why do we make disciples? Because the king of the universe has commands us to, he commissions us to, he sends us in his power to make disciples. The king has commanded us. Not suggested, he has commanded this to us. See, David Livingstone puts it this way. David Livingstone is a missionary who worked in South, Southern, Southern Africa and Central Africa. This is what he says. If a commission by an earthly king is considered an honor, how can a commission by a heavenly king be considered a sacrifice? It's a privilege. If the king of the universe calls us to join him in this journey as he brings the world to himself, it is a privilege to join him in, in this work. It's not something we should put aside as something that's probably, that disturbs the, our lives, that interrupts our lives. No, it is a privilege to join this Jesus who calls us to follow him into his mission. Now, third point and our last point. How do we then make disciples? How, how do we make disciples? We'll look at that in verse 19 to verse 20. I'll suggest a couple of practical things in this very verse. Listen to verse 19 to verse 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, before I give us a, pra- a few practical things, it'll be worthwhile for us to just go through that verse first so I can explain a few things. Notice with me the words that jump out from that very passage. Go, baptizing and teaching. Go and make disciples by baptizing and teaching. This is what it looks like to be on mission. This is what it looks like to make disciples, to call others to follow Jesus. Go. Let's think about that first word, go. This word implies or expresses an ongoing action. It's not a one-time event. Actually, it can be understood as follows. As you are going, make disciples. So there's an assumption here that followers of Jesus, those who have come to believe in Jesus, the church will always be going. The church will always be on mission. Followers of Jesus will always be calling others to follow Jesus and to follow them. Our lives ought to be missional. That's that's the clear assumption from that very phrase. See, as the church, we do not wait for people to come to us. No, we go to them. We take this message of the gospel, the message of the good news to them. 
we go to the world. So as we are going, or you may ask where in the world should we go? Let me suggest two ways. Two ways. The very first one is God might send you to go as a missionary. He might send you to go as a missionary to unreached parts of the world. Parts of the world where people have not yet heard the gospel. Or parts of the world where people have not clearly had the gospel taught properly. God might send you out as a missionary in that way. But for most of us, excuse me, (coughs) for most of us, God expects us and he sends us to be missional where he has placed us. God expects us to be missional where he has placed us. If you were here for the very first talk, you would remember I said God has given us relationships or networks that he expects us to use for the sake of the gospel. The networks are familiar, your family, where you stay, where you work or where you study, where you go for fun, where you, have, uh, where you go to do your groceries as well. God has given us all these networks in order that you and I may be able to use them for the sake of the gospel. So God has given us these networks that we may share the gospel with others. And so you and I, I think, often complicate what it looks like to go or what it looks like to make disciples because we think we've got to go to people we do not know. And that's true, you might have to. But God has already given you people in your circle whom he expects you to take this message to. But how then do you make them disciples? We are told here by baptizing and teaching them. Baptizing and teaching them. First, baptism. I must say first, as important as baptism is, baptism is not magical. In some circles, you will have people who bring their kids at a very young age to be baptized because they think it will save them from something. Now, now as a church, we baptize kids, but there's a purpose to that. If you have become a Christian recently and you have a kid and would like to have your child baptized, come talk to one of us. We will be very keen to explain why we do it and baptize your child. See, baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality, a reality that this person has been converted. Actually, Paul puts it this way, that this person has been baptized into death with Jesus and has rose with Jesus into new life. It is a sign that you and I are part of God's family, a sign that we have become part of his family. So if you have been baptized recently, know that this was a sign to say I'm part of God's family. And notice something about this family. This family is on mission. This family goes out on mission together. There's a quote by a commentator who says this, the great commission is too big for anyone to accomplish on their own or alone. And too, and too important for us to not try and do it together. See, God brings us into a family. A family in which you and I go out on mission with. So it's quite clear. We go out and share the gospel with the person. And when they become converted, they become baptized into this family. But notice what else he says to us. He tells us teaching them everything that Jesus has commanded. So so it's quite clear that that, that we're not simply making converts. No, we're making people who will live lives that are centered around Jesus. People who will live lives that are missional, who will live for Jesus. We are establishing and equipping people to live lives that are centered around Jesus. And you can either do the teaching yourself, or you can get someone else to do the teaching. 
You can invite the person to any of the teaching platforms here at the church, like Sunday morning or any of our life groups. So you do not need to know the whole Bible for you to be able to share the gospel with the person. Now, I took this PowerPoint slide from Martin this morning, and this PowerPoint shows the different styles you can use to share the gospel with others. One of the things you can do is by inviting others into your house for a bride, as Matthew does. He uses a meal and relates to build relationships with people and share the gospel with them. Now, I'm not going to go through all of this. Or you are perhaps like Paul. You like arguing. You like reasoning with people intellectually about the gospel. You might be that kind of person. Maybe that's your style. That's what you could use. This morning, Martin actually went through all of these. And so if you'd like to know a little bit more about that, go to that sermon. See, as we live out on mission, Jesus tells us, he tells us that he will be with us. He gives us great comfort, and the comfort is that he will empower us by his spirit. See, that last verse there says to us, know this, I'm always with you to the very end of the age. Jesus does not send us on our own. As we go out on mission for him, he is with us and empowers us by his spirit. See, these words transformed the lives of the disciples to be missional, to make their lives about calling others to follow Jesus. I pray that this evening that these words would do the very same work in your life, that you would prioritize calling others to follow Jesus, not simply because we know that people are damned to an eternity without God if they do not hear the gospel, but because this Jesus has told us to do it. He calls us to be on mission for him, to take this wonderful news of his gospel to the world. Let me close with these words. We face a humanity that is too precious to neglect. We know a remedy for the ills of the world that is too wonderful to withhold. We have a Christ that is too glorious to hide. And we have an adventure, a missional life, that is too thrilling to miss. So why don't you put up your hand today and say, Ngulungulu, Tumamina. I want to be among those who have been transformed by the speech and our mission for you. So in this week, go out and change the world. Let me pray for us. Father, we pray that these words have really spoken to us and that we will see the need to prioritize making disciples or calling others to follow you. That we would realize that it's not an option. That you command us to take these wonderful news of your kingdom to the world. In Jesus' name we've prayed. Amen.